Welcome to A Higher Branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host, Sam McCall. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Higher Branch. This week, I want to confront you with this conundrum. We live in a world where artificial intelligence is converging on human intelligence. And our ability to stay relevant is more important than ever. As Professor Yuval Harari once said, it is harder for humans to be ignored than exploited. And with the advent of uh, artificial intelligence, our lives are now being managed by algorithms, by machines, and it is literally man versus machine. And the World Forum estimates that in the next five years, 85 million people are going to lose their jobs to artificial intelligence. And technology is a double-edged sword because technology gives us so many new and wonderful things that make life easier, but it is making us dumb. It is making us depressed. And as my next guest will talk about, it's bringing on early onset dementia. You need to really listen to this podcast because I see this as the single most important aspect of our lives going forward. This is much more important than COVID-19, I assure you. So we're going to dive deep into these concepts. And today I'm joined by Professor Mark Williams, formerly a professor at Macquarie University. And we've had some very interesting conversations offline. And on that note, Professor Mark Williams, welcome to A Higher Branch. Thank you for inviting me along, Sam. It's great to be here. Now, before this podcast, I uh, started listening to some of your talks. You've been featured on New York Times. There's many interviews with yourself on Sky News. And for people who want to listen to those, please visit uh, Mark's website, drmarkwilliams.com. Now, you've authored 80-plus publications. You're the professor of cognitive neuroscience, and uh, now you're an international speaker and facilitator. You've worked at the best universities in Australia and overseas, including MIT in the US. As I said, you've been featured on ABC, SBS, The Guardian, The Economist, and The New Scientist. You have a doctorate of philosophy and experimental psychology at uh, Monash University. So you're the guy that we need to be talking when it comes to cognitive uh, function and the importance of cognitive performance going forward in this new realm, in this new age of algorithms and AI and live chat bots. It's a scary world and it's an exciting world at the same time. Now, I want to give this some context to our higher branch listeners. Now, most of you are familiar with our two frameworks for living. The first one is holistic living, made up of the eight areas of life. And the second one is the five-step circle of conscious living. Now, in one of the steps to conscious living is a vision, and the other step is reflection. So those two faculties are super important for human existence and human progress. So when we're performing a task, we're living in a present. But when we're visualizing the future, we're using the power of vision or creative imagination. When we are reflecting on the past, we're using the power of memory. So today, Professor Mark Williams and myself are going to talk about those two faculties, but in particular, 
the power of reflection or your memory. The importance of reflection is all about learning. So we cannot learn and make progress if we don't have the power of memory and most important recall. Memory is there to remind us of the mistakes we've made in the past or the learnings so we can pivot for the future. But as uh, Professor Mark Williams will talk about, our memory is taking a battering at the moment, our ability to recall information, our ability to be creative and have critical thinking, our ability to innovate is being impaired. So where do we go from here? On that note, Professor Mark Williams, can you tell us, first of all, how our memories formed like what's happening in the brain yeah so it's really interesting there's been a lot of discoveries recently we now know that we don't actually form memories to remember the past we form memories to act in the future so memories are only useful to us if they help us in the future and any memories that aren't going to help us in the future we actually delete from our brains so at, at night we go through five stages and the first couple of those stages are basically to get rid of neurotransmitters get rid of any neurotoxins in the brain and to work out what memories you're actually still using and what memories aren't going to be useful in the future and then a degrade process so you get rid of extra memories that you're not using so you can store new memories and then the last stage is laying down those new memories and also running through scenarios that happen that day so they're not only scenarios that actually happen but also running through alternative scenarios so that you can actually learn from what you actually did that day. And so that's why we have a lot of false memories. So a lot of the memories that we actually like lay down are actually based on some of those scenarios, which were alternative scenarios rather than the actual scenarios that happened during the day. So you have that also occurring at night. And what's really cool about it is we run through those scenarios and fast forward. So we actually run through thousands of different scenarios during the nighttime that could have happened. And that's when teenagers actually learn a lot of their abilities or their later abilities to have friendships and to work out when there's issues between them and other friends and so on. So it's really important for those stages as well. Yeah, we've got to remember that actually to learn, we need to have good sleep at night because that's actually when all the memories are actually laid down. And learning requires the memories that you're forming are actually for you to use in the future. So Plato actually spoke about this many years ago, quite famously, and he talked about the, the slave in the cave. Most of us are slaves in a cave, shackled to the back of the cave, and all we can see is a formed on the back of the cave by the fire in the middle of the cave. And to actually get released from the cave and come out and see the world as it actually is, you need to be a learner. To not be a slave and actually be able to see the world as it actually is, you need to actually learn. And that's for why we have memories. It's actually to form memories so that we can see the world as it actually is. Only see what we actually know. So we know our perception is actually based on our memory, not based on what we're actually seeing. So everything you see is actually based on what's already in your memory. And then errors, that is, you get this error feedback loop that actually determines whether or not what it's presenting to you is actually what's out there. And if it's not, It'll make corrections for that. But you can't actually see anything unless it's already in your memory. Memories are really important for us acting in the future and us seeing things in the future rather than just for us recalling stuff from the past. So obviously then memories are coupled with our vision. I, I like that you called that out because the past, the present and the future are all related yeah intrinsically linked and in actual fact we now know which is another really important thing for 
the way we're interacting with the world. We know that we actually have this, this two areas of the brain, one's called the parahippocampal place area um, and another one is your memory centres and they're very close to each other. Parahippocampal place area, you don't have to remember the name, but that area of the brain is actually where our place cells are. So where we've been in the world yeah. and then our memory centres right next to that. And we actually remember what we did during the day and all the things that happened during the day based on where we've been. But a big problem at the moment is we don't actually remember where we've been because we use apps on our phones to actually get places. And if you use an app on your phone to get somewhere, you don't remember as much about that day as if you actually found your way there yourself. Because when you're using an app on your phone, you're not getting there yourself. So you don't remember how you actually got there. So you don't have those memory traces in the parahippocampal place area that can be linked to the hippocampus, which can then lay down what actually happened during that day. So that's also a big issue for these algorithms that we're using these days to actually get around is that we're not forming those fundamental memory traces where we've been so that we can then remember what actually happened during the day. It's interesting you say that because the other day, my wife and I were driving somewhere and I was relying on Google Maps. And then at one stage I got frustrated because it was diverting, you know, when Google Maps goes a bit wacky sometimes and it was telling me to go left. And then I just said, can you switch it off? I know the way I've been here before. And then my memory kicked in and I started noticing, oh yes, I remember that service station, even though we'd only been there once before, but I started actually using my brain mm -hmm. and it was different. It was like stepping out of the movie screen and being the watcher rather than actually being in the movie screen and getting lost in the script. So it was a weird sensation where I stepped out and noticed things that I never noticed before. And you were in the real world rather than in your phone, which means Absolutely. that you're actually using all those extra abilities. And we know that you've got to use those abilities. Use it or lose it is a term that we use a lot in neuroscience. And we know that a lot of people think use it or lose it means that you've got to use your brain. And so they'll have an app that they'll do with word finding or something, and they'll do that all day. But right. that only practices one ability. It doesn't actually use the whole of the brain but you need to use the whole of the brain and by doing that by just focusing on one ability for example it's similar to somebody who does a lot of exercise and just gets a barbell and just does the, the barbell curls and does yeah. that all day and then they go to pick up the couch because they have to move it and they break their back or they you know pull muscles in their leg or whatever because they've got really good biceps but the rest of their body has atrophied because they're never actually exercising any of that. And it's the same with our brain. We've got to exercise the whole brain. And to do that, you've got to actually get out there in the real world. You've actually got to interact with people. You've got to find your own way around. You've got to think. <laughs> you've, got to, you know, you've got to do all those things which our brains have actually evolved for. And, and we're not doing a lot of those things anymore because of the fact that we have these devices, which is causing a lot of the atrophy that we're seeing these days. So... At the moment, there's a huge focus by people on physical fitness. Almost 90% of my friends go to the gym once or twice a day. They're eating really well and they're training and they have amazing physiques. And in that respect, we are much more developed than our parents and our grandparents, probably not our great grandparents who had functional fitness by you know plowing the fields and what have you. But my concern is that we're going to have people in their late 50s and early 60s who have great bodies, but very poor cognitive performance. 
And we all know if anyone has had a parent or relatives that have suffered from dementia, your mind can destroy your body very quickly. You can lose all the muscle mass that you've developed over 50 years very quickly if you literally lose your mind. Dementia is a horrible uh, thing, but the research shows that dementia and early onset dementia is now getting younger and younger. And I had this theory many years ago as a uh, teenager where I thought, is Alzheimer's just simply the body's message that A, we are not living in the present and two, we are not living in the real world. And it was just an inkling that I had. And I used to say, it's tied to that concept of you're going to use it or lose it. Mm. But I always say, if you're not living in the present, you're always living in your mind. You're not living in your body. You're not noticing things. Is that shutting down certain parts of the brain? And equally, if we're always on technology, watching TV or YouTube or Instagram, what's happening to our minds there? And how dangerous really is it? Because... It feels like the whole world is walking off the technology cliff <laughs> and we're all following blindly, including myself. I can't throw out my technology. Yeah, and I don't think we need to throw it out. I think we just need to take control of it. At the moment, the technology is designed to capture our attention. So we know one of the big problems, I think, with technology is that your Facebooks and Google and the internet and all these things are all free. And so, therefore, these tech companies are making billions of dollars. And they're making billions of dollars by capturing our attention and holding our attention. One of the biggest problems, of course, is that the apps that we have on our phone, and most of those apps are free, or they only charge a very small amount. So, to actually make money off them, people have to be attending to them a lot so that they can sell lots of advertising. And to do that, what they've got to do is get your attention and get you onto them. So they have notifications and they have likes and they have beeps and they have buzzes and all the rest. And all those things are constantly capturing our attention so that we're not actually in the real world, but rather we're on these devices. And so if you turn off all those notifications and you actually decide when you're going to look at the device yourself, which is what I do, but if you turn off all the notifications, and then actually scheduling your day when you're going to check email or when you're going to check in Facebook and those, then you get back control of your attention. And that allows you to use the devices in the way that they should be used and doesn't allow the tech companies to make huge amounts of money out of selling your attention, which is your attention. It should be something that you have control over rather than the tech companies. At the moment, they have control over it. And what's really sad is that the younger a child is given a device the more likely they are to have ADD because of the impact it has on our attention. And the more time a child spends on a device, the more likely they are to have ADD. So they're actually really affecting our attention. And and that happens to adults as well. It's just adults don't get diagnosed with ADD, whereas children do. Adults get diagnosed with other (laughs) issues, and that is anxiety, depression. I coached someone recently who is suffering from depression and anxiety. And she came to me for life strategy coaching. And I said, I'm not a therapist. And uh, she said, I've seen a therapist and I'm just not going anywhere. Anyway, after a series of meetings, I figured out uh, as a lawyer, I'm very good at cross-examining. And I just said, you really, you're not in a good place. said, no. I said, can we just try something? I said, can you just disconnect Facebook and Instagram for the next two weeks? Long story short, she actually closed the accounts 
And she said, my anxiety and depression has gone. Now, we all know that 87% of people worldwide are disengaged at work. And I think all roads lead back to technology abuse. And uh, in my business, a huge percentage of people we hire under the age of 25 suffer from either anxiety or depression. Now, we live in the most comfortable times in human history. And the only correlation that we can see out there is between technology use and the rise of anxiety and depression. So it is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. And we have had so many people, whether we've talked about sleep or we've talked about work performance, we always circle back to this topic of digital dementia or technology abuse. And I accept what you're saying that we can do some things like turn off notifications. We can book our day in the first hour and last hour, tech free. We can put our phones at the door and not have it on the dining room table. But let me tell you, nobody does it. So we are no match for these billionaire dictators. And I don't want this conversation to be a political (laughs) statement. I'm not politically affiliated to any side of politics. And my view is that we have governments that are in power and they make the rules. We should follow those rules because there is no perfect system and we just got to follow the system that's in place at the time out of respect for our democracy. But the question has to be asked, are we no match for the psychologists that are at work at Facebook, at Google, at all these tech companies And it's broadening because tech is now converging on agriculture as well. And they're using artificial intelligence in farming. And is this about the disempowerment of humans? And what I said up front, is this making humans feel irrelevant? One of the eight areas of life in our academy is charity or the sense of contribution. It fills the fundamental human need for contribution. Now, as humans... If we feel like our contribution to society is meaningless or irrelevant, then we die emotionally. It can cause depression. Mm -hmm. So we are at the crossroads now where over the next five years, the World Trade Forum said that 85 million people are going to be displaced. These 85 million people, they can go one of two ways. And this is why I wanted to record this podcast for our listeners because I want them to go the right way. One of two ways is they can go down the dark depths of depression because they become irrelevant and and unemployed, or they can boost their cognitive performance. They can boost their creativity, their innovation, their critical thinking, and be turned into creators of value to customers and other people. Now, how can we get people to divert from that dark path to the path of innovation and creativity or what I call CI, because I think CI or creative imagination trumps AI. Artificial intelligence cannot innovate or create. They can't be original. They can only learn. So how do we divert humanity from this cliff, this technology cliff where we are becoming dumb, depressed, and demented, right? Yeah, I think there's a great opportunity here. And I think, unfortunately, there's too much emphasis on the fact that we're losing jobs and, and not enough emphasis on the fact that the jobs we're losing are jobs that we don't actually like anyway. So most of the jobs that are going to be lost, or all the jobs that are going to be lost, 
are repetitive things because those are the things that robots can do. So robots can do really repetitive things that we can program them for, that artificial intelligence can program them for, or coding. Coding's going to be one of the jobs that is is already being lost. Yeah, the coding jobs are going down, and very repetitive jobs, manufacturing jobs are going down, which are the jobs that most of us don't like. If you, I, I can code in six different languages, and it's the most horrendous job I've ever done. It's, we call them data games in my industry um, because they really do just sit there all night, usually all night, <laughs> in the dark and code. But we're getting rid of those jobs to artificial intelligence. And all of the jobs that are becoming more important. So the big growth industries are the health industry, A, because we're living longer, but B, because we're getting more money and we're actually looking after ourselves. So also sports and all those things. And other areas are bespoke industries where we actually make things ourselves because we actually really like things that are handmade. We don't like things that are made by robots. I always give the example when I do presentations of um, of coffee because I'm, I'm a huge coffee drinker and I love coffee. And if I wanted to now, I could go and get a robot to make me a coffee. I could go to a 7-Eleven and they've got little robots there that make coffee for you. And yeah. I could press a button and make my coffee and I pay for it. And I actually pay less, but I don't. I go to a cafe because I like someone to actually make my coffee for me and somebody who knows my name and says hello and knows what coffee I want and all the rest. We like that. We like bespoke things. We like connection. And we like things that are handmade. Where I'm happy to buy shoes that cost me 10, 15 20 times the amount of the cheap ones that I can get that are made by a robot because they're bespoke shoes from Italy. They've been handmade. That's why I think it's going to be fantastic because we can all start being creative. We can all start working in those bespoke jobs. And we actually don't like robots. Also, there's this big thing, suggestion that all of a sudden robots are going to be in our community and they're going to be serving as coffee. And all. That's never going to happen for several reasons. One is they can't actually interact in the environment that most of us live, which is very unstable. And we can't get robots to work on those unstable environments very well or very easily. And the other thing is the uncanny effect. So we as humans don't like robots and we don't like robots being around us. And there's, there's actually a very good research at Macquarie University, there's a huge amount of work on trying to get kids to become empathic for robots to actually like robots and she can't get it to work it hasn't worked yet and there's a huge amount of research showing that we actually won't let robots into our homes and we won't let robots serve us because we don't actually trust robots so they're not actually going to take any of those jobs they're not going to take service industry jobs and they're not going to take health industry jobs they're not going to take jobs such as lawyers and so on who need to actually interact and actually need to be, think on their feet and be innovative and so on they're just going to take the jobs that we actually don't like but what we need to be really careful of is allowing it into our lives when it comes to things like mobile phones or you know smartwatches and those things and allowing those to take our, over our lives. Because what we do know is if we're not using our brain, it does atrophy. And we, we've known that for a long time. That A lot of that research has actually come from nursing homes. And 40, 50 years ago, we used to put people in nursing homes and they used to have their little room and they'd sit there and they'd watch TV all day and they'd die very quickly. Yes, And then we started going, hang on, let's start doing things with them. So we take them out, we socialise them, we give them you know, exercises to do but all, and all of those things. And all of a sudden they started living 5, 10, 15 years longer because of the fact that they're actually doing stuff. Now, at the moment, a lot of people are actually defaulting to their phones. So they're doing you know, calculations on their phone. I don't know how many times I go to a cafe and you know, it picks up the phone to, to, to add 
$2.50 and $3.65 or something. And you're like, you can do that in your head. Come on, seriously. Um, <laughs> we're doing it for um, maps to get us around the city. Um, we're doing it for our emails and all these things, yeah? And so we've got to stop doing that. And I think that's something we've got to get out there. And I'm also, I don't like being political, but one thing that really frustrates me is that we allow phones in schools. And we shouldn't allow phones, we shouldn't allow smartphones, we shouldn't allow devices in schools. Australia is number one in the world for devices in schools. We have more devices in our schools than any other country in the world. Kids spend more time on devices in Australia than any other country in the world. Kids spend more time on the internet on schools than any other country in the world. And yet we're slipping when it comes to science, maths and literacy. And we know that, you know, the top four countries in the world for using devices, down the bottom half when it comes to science, maths and literacy. The bottom four countries for devices in schools are amongst the top 10 when it comes to science, maths and literacy. We need to start thinking about that as well. We need to go, okay, our kids need to have the opportunity for that 12 years of their lives to be without the devices so that when they come out and all of a sudden they're flooded by them, then They've got control over their attention. They've got control over their short-term memory, their working memory, their ability to control these things. And so they're not as impacted as badly as they are. But at the moment, where we're actually putting kids on devices at six years of age, we're going to have a huge problem in 12 years' time when these kids start coming out and they're completely addicted to these devices and haven't learnt any. Kids in Australia at the moment are about a year and a half, two years behind where they should be by the time they finish year 12. So they're equivalent of about a year 10 student from, oh. yeah, from Ireland. You know? That's sad and really scary and confronting when you think about it. We need to start thinking about that. But we also need to think about it the way we, we use it. If you're on a device and you have a smartphone beside you, I don't at the moment because I don't keep them near me. Here's a nice example. If you have your smartphone and you're driving your car and you turn your smartphone off and you put it in your glove box, 10% of your attention is still on your smartphone, even though it's turned off and it's in your glove box. 10% of your attention is equivalent to having one standard drink. So you've got equivalent of one standard drink if it's turned off and if it's in your glove box. If it's actually beside you and it beeps or it buzzes or it does any of those things, then all of your attention goes to your smartphone, even if you don't answer it, which means you have no attention on the road. And that happens for about 60 seconds. And that's if you don't answer it. So in that 60 seconds, anything could happen. And then if you actually answer it, it's even more. Now, think about it. When you're working, if your email buzzes, yeah, or if your email flicks, you lose your attention for that 60 seconds. That means that everything you were just thinking about is gone and you've got to start again. And so you've lost everything that you were thinking about before that. There was a book by uh, Cal Newport, I think, called Deep yeah. Work. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Very a topic. But just want to go back a, a couple of steps. There was so much that you downloaded then that I want to uh, just go over. Firstly, I accept that there's a lot of jobs that robots and artificial intelligence will take over jobs that humans just don't like. Thing is, I, I don't enjoy sweeping my backyard from leaves, but I get fulfillment out of it. I don't think we're meant to like everything. But I'd rather have a job that I don't enjoy and get fulfillment from than no job at all. There's going to be pain during that transition where we have millions and millions of people worldwide without any meaning, without anything to wake up to. So governments worldwide have that challenge. 
And that's why I think your message is so important. And the work that you do needs to filter out there on podcasts such as ours and others. So assuming that we can make that shift and be more creative and innovative and focus on things that light us up and give the menial tasks to the uh, bots, we still have to take care of our brain. So we have the ability to do that. But it feels like it's a catch-22 here because a huge percentage of people are getting dumber because of technology. I use that word with the utmost of respect. I gave you an example earlier of how dumb I was when I was driving to a place where I knew how to get to and I was following Google Maps instead of my own memory. So the question is then how do, how do we, and this is a huge challenge, how do we stay creative and innovative? How do we stay married to technology? Because we're not going to divorce ourselves from it. That's the reality. And still have our brains stay sharp, stay creative, still retain our critical thinking, still be empowered to think for ourselves, create for ourselves, and also to have empathy for others. I've heard and read your work on the importance of empathy. And especially if you're in business, you cannot design customer experiences if you don't have empathy. So people in product development need to have empathy. And technology is stripping away our ability to be empathetic. It's taking away our ability to recall memories. So my question to you, two questions is, one is how can we keep our memory sharp? And two, how can we stay creative and and have empathy in a world where technology is pulling us the other way? It's a bit like trying to swim and you've got technology, you know, pulling us under. How do we do that? Yeah, they're they're very good questions. They're both closely related. So the really interesting things, thing about our brain is that we don't have access to, to most of our thinking. Most of our thinking is done subconsciously and it's done by our long-term memory. And what we have is we have a, what we call a working memory where we pull stuff out either of long-term memory to manipulate or it's new stuff that's coming in. We hold it in working memory to actually then hold it long enough so that it goes into short-term memory so then it can be stored that night. So that's new memories. But it has to be held there for a certain amount of time. And our working memory, when it was first studied 50, 60 years ago, uh, we discovered that it had seven items or seven slots in it that you could use. So there's, you can hold on to seven things at a time. And that's why phone numbers used to be six to seven digits long because you could hold them in memory. Now they're much longer because they're all held in our phones rather than us actually using it. But there's seven slots that you can use. Um, and yeah. if you want to actually manipulate the information, then you need a couple of those slots to actually manipulate the information. What's scary is that recently that's been re-looked at, and it looks as though we've actually lost some of those slots because of the fact that we're using these devices and everything all the time. But the important thing is you've got to hold it in that working memory. Now, if you're on a device and you get distracted by a little digit coming up because you've got an email or a ping or a buzzer or whatever, you lose everything that's in there because you've attended to something else. And you lose it for about 60 seconds. And then you've got to actually then get it back again. Yeah. And so if you want to be innovative, you want to be creative, 
if you want to actually learn, you've got to hold it in there without being distracted. So you've got to avoid any of those extra things that are happening, which is why I always say get rid of notifications. And then notifications are really the worst thing when it comes to being intelligent, innovative, creative, any of those things. So to use those seven slots, you've got to get rid of the pings and everything else because you don't want to capture your attention and you don't want to delete those because then you've got to try and get them back to hold them in there. You've got to hold them in there for long enough. And that's how memories form, is you hold things in there for long enough and then it gets transferred to short-term memory and at night it gets transferred to long-term memory. But we need to do that without actually allowing it to, to go away. But it's, it is like a muscle. And I do wonder, if you think back two generations ago, if they heard that we had gyms that we go to to exercise because we don't get enough exercise, they would have laughed at us two generations ago, right? Because yeah. they were all out in fields and they were all doing those things. And, and back then, if you had said, oh, we're all going to get so lazy, we're all going to be looked after and all the rest of it, and we're going to have these gyms where we're going to go and people are actually going to train us and make us work hard so that we can build muscle and so that we can be healthy, right? They would have laughed at us. In one or two generations, there may be gyms for our intelligence because of the fact that we you know, have lost all those abilities. Actually, they're popping up now. Popping Are they up. really? There's uh, one I came across the other day called Mr. Wolf, which is described as a personal training for your mind. Wow. Okay. And there's one that's opened up also in Barangaroo called MYND Studios. That's also training for the mind. They inevitably have, it's a place to press pause and recharge, they call it. Okay. Uh, yeah, mind studios, but mind is with a Y. Right. Uh, so they're popping up because yeah. obviously there's a need, but yeah. I'm curious, I, I'm going to have to go try them and report <laughs> back to our community. Yeah. But the, the best way to be productive and actually have time to be innovative and creative is to use what they call Pomodoro technique. And Pomodoro technique is amazing for productivity. It's something that I constantly teaching people how to use both at schools and in different businesses and so on. Pomodoro, Pomodoro comes from, the, from Italy. It's basically a timer, which is shaped like a tomato, hence Pomodoro. And you set it for 25 minutes and it counts down. And for 25 minutes, you yeah. focus on one thing and one thing only. And that's all you do for that 25 minutes. And then once the timer goes off, you stop immediately, whatever you're doing, and you have five minutes off where you actually do something. You get up, you move around, you exercise, you do step-ups or whatever you want to actually do. And then you do 25 minutes again, and you do that for four times, which gives you two hours. And then you have a longer break, usually about 20 minutes. And during that time is when I check my email and do those sorts of things. That's my opportunity to check email and so on. But each of the 25 minutes, you focus on one thing and one thing only, and you have everything else turned off. And it's been shown to be the most productive way to set out your day and the most productive way to actually be innovative and creative and so on. That's a really nice, simple trick to actually use. And I actually teach teachers how to do it as well, where they set it up for school kids and I work with a lot of school psychologists and we've been doing it with kids with ADD and kids with autism to actually increase the amount of time that they can actually sit and concentrate by slowly increasing the amount of time the Pomodoro goes for. I absolutely love that technique. I have heard of it before. I think I've heard Jim Quick talk about that. He was at our Upgrade Your Life event last year and he, he talked about that on stage. And I noticed on your website, there's some courses as well. Do you talk about the Pomodoro technique? 
I do. Yeah, I talk about that a lot. So I teach neuroscience of learning. So just going through how learning works. You mentioned something about learning, which is making mistakes. I, I go through a lot about the fact that we don't learn anything unless we make mistakes. So you only learn something when you get something wrong. And so how important it is to get things wrong. A lot of people these days are such perfectionists that they won't get things wrong. And therefore you're actually not learning anything. And that's a real problem and a real problem for innovation and creativity. Because of course, in any environment where you're trying to be creative or innovative, you're going to make lots of mistakes. Because if you're not making lots of mistakes, you're not being creative, right? You've got to... Yeah, whereas a lot of people are really reluctant on that. But yeah, I teach neuroscience of learning and we also go through the Pomodoro tax to get learning better. But I also teach neuroscience of emotions where a lot of my research actually started in emotion perception, empathy perception, and how we actually implicitly recognise facial expression and the amygdala and the fight or flight response that is associated with that and why anxiety is actually going up in our society because of the fact that we're not looking at facial expressions anymore because we spend too much time on devices and we're not actually looking up, but we actually process those facial expressions. So while you're walking around the city, checking your emails or whatever, your amygdala is responding to all these faces and facial expressions that are out there. But because you're not attending to them, they're actually increasing your heart rate, they're increasing the vascular dilation and so on. And so you feel anxious because you're not actually looking at the facial expressions to, to dampen down that automatic response. And that's I've heard, why... you, I've heard you say that technology use is creating that anxiety and it's reducing our EQ, our emotional intelligence, because we are not socializing face-to-face and we're not living in the real world, as you call it. So how do we prevent that? Well, we prevent that by socializing more, right? And we'll talk about that a little later. It's a bit like going to the gym. You've got to just go out and do it. Do it. (laughs) Okay. So what other things are good for memory and memory recalls? So sleep is vitally important. You've got to get eight hours of sleep at night. Eight hours of sleep is vital because all of your memories are actually formed during your sleep period. And most of them are formed in the last two cycles of your sleep period, which is the last two hours of an eight-hour sleep period. Is it during REM? Yeah, it's during REM, but your REM sleep is shorter in the first six times that it happens. So each of your cycles, the the full cycle takes about an hour. You do it around about eight times during an eight-hour sleeping session. For the first three or four times that you go through, your REM is quite short because it focuses more on getting rid of the neurotoxins, getting rid of um, bad chemicals in your brain and so on. And then it's the last two that it spends most of its time actually forming the new memory so if you don't get that full time then you miss out on forming some of those memories and it doesn't have them for the next day (laughs) i'm going to show you something because what you just described exactly that's the pattern that i go through at night so i wear an aura ring Uh and and you'll see that most of my rem yep happens in the morning sure does (laughs) And uh, the deep sleep happens between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m., I think. In the first four hours, most of the deep sleep happens. Yeah. Most of the REM sleep happens later in the morning. That's why I'm not a fan of the 5 a.m. or the 4 a.m. club. Some of the um, motivational gurus will say, you got to get up early. I'm a mess when I get up at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. because I miss out on that REM sleep. So I'm really glad you called out sleep because... That's something just like technology that 
is a common topic amongst all experts across the eight areas of life, whether we're talking about the couples therapy and relationships, work performance, health and energy, it all comes back to sleep. Mm. You know? So it's a superpower for, for your brain. It is. And we also reset our emotions at night too. So if you've had a bad day, during your sleep is when you actually reset that and you actually come back feeling better. And again, if you don't get the full eight hours, you don't get the best of that REM sleep where you're actually resetting that. And you also come up, as I said earlier, you go through scenarios of the day. So you actually go, okay, I had a fight with my partner today and she said this, but what happens if she said that, what would have happened? Or what if I had said this, what would have happened? And so you go through all these alternative scenarios. So you learn a lot about yourself and about other people during those sleep times, which is really important for us developing our, our social cognition or our emotional intelligence, which a lot of people are missing out on because they're on devices at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night before they go to sleep, which means that they're looking at that blue light which interferes with their melatonin and their ability to actually go to sleep. So they don't sleep as well. So you don't get those deep sleep at the beginning. So then you can't go into your REM sleep later on. So yeah, it's, yeah, it wrecks that whole system, which is not great. So we need to get rid of the devices at nighttime. Read a book. Books are fantastic for putting you to sleep, especially if you read a bad book. (laughs) It'll put you to sleep very well. But yeah, no, reading books is great for going to sleep. And also you remember in backwards order. So you remember what you learned just before you fell asleep. Yes. And then you go backwards. So you remember best what you learned just before you go to sleep. Um, and everything else. So if you, you know, watch YouTube videos of cats or whatever, that's what you're going to lay down first, yeah? Whereas if you've read something meaningful, if you've read a book on uh, Dalai Lama or something, that's what you're going to lay down first, and that's what's going to have the biggest impact on your next day. You also want to be reading stuff that's meaningful and some stuff that's going to have a positive impact on you. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, look, and it is a very important topic. And I'm looking at the time and I'm thinking, wow, we're approaching an hour already, but I don't want to stop there. And if people will just stay with us on this journey, because I, I promise you, this is a super important topic, your ability to stay mentally sharp as, as you go through every decade is going to be critical. And there's nothing worse than the pain of regret, looking back and saying, I heard Professor Mark Williams talk about this 30 years ago, and I didn't do it. Now, let's go to the tips. Okay, so I know there's a lot of uh, brain training apps out there, which is ironic because we're using apps that are making us dumb to train our brain. My research shows that socializing trumps any (laughs) brain training activities or jigsaws or whatever you want to do. And uh, I come from a very small village in the base of Mount Lebanon. And uh, the ladies there living over a hundred, right? The guys are hitting almost a hundred. They're like in their mid nineties. The great thing about them, and I've visited there and I've spoken to them is they're all mentally sharp. And these are people where electricity gets shut down at 8.30, not just TV, right? Yeah, sure. They have devices, but they gather a lot, whether it's at church or at the Sunday long lunch or making bread or making olive oil, there's a huge social element and they're always doing and interacting with others. How important is socializing then to our ability to have great memories, great memory recall, 
empathy, creativity, and innovation. And I want to make the point to people that are listening now is that is your innate state. You don't have to try to be innovative or creative. You just need to get out of the way or get technology out of the way. You just need to get rid of those things that is dampening your creativity or your innovation, your memory. Having poor memory and having poor recall, having poor creativity and walking around feeling numb with no critical thinking, that's not your natural state. That just means you are dampening your natural state. So some of these tips will get you back to your natural state, which is what we're describing. I described in these old people that are living in this small village. Yeah, absolutely. As I said, I took voluntary redundancy at the end of last year. And the first thing I started to do was finally writing a book that I've been meaning to write for many years, uh, which is called The Connected Species and almost finished the first draft. But I've done a lot of work for many years on our ability to communicate and to socialize. And the really important thing that you've got to realize is that for 12 million years, we've been evolving to live in social communities, to socialize. Our brains are designed to socialize. Everything about our brains is really designed for us to socialize. For 2 million years, we've been developing this brain to socialize, to spend time with people, to read their facial expressions, to read prosody and so on in voices, to know when someone's actually, you know, moving towards you because they like you versus moving towards you because they're about to punch you. All of those things are really innate and happen automatically for us. But you've got to remember all of that has been evolving over 12 million years and that's how we've been living. For about 100,000 years, we've had language and most of us have only learned how to read and write in the last generation or two. Yeah? And yeah. yet now what we're doing is we're relying on that ability to read and write That is, we're texting each other and we're doing all those things, which only takes up a small amount of our brain and so therefore isn't really that useful and doesn't tell us most of the information that we actually need to know when we're actually communicating with someone. And all that other stuff that we've evolved over 12 million years, we're completely ignoring. And so when you actually do socialise with someone, basically 95% of your brain lights up. You're using a huge amount of your brain to do that. When you're texting, you're using this tiny little bit of your brain, one or two little areas, and that's it. And that's all that's actually involved in that. So, yeah, to exercise your brain, the best thing you can do, sit down and have a coffee with someone. Put your phone away and actually just chat to them. And it, it is so important for emotional control, ability to just connecting with someone else. We have a whole bunch of neurotransmitters that are released just when we actually talk to someone face-to-face. Also, touch is really important. I know at the moment because of COVID, we're not allowed to touch, touch each other, but grooming is so important in our whole interaction. And again, neurotransmitters, we have these special C-fibers on our hairy skin, which only activate when we touch nicely by someone else. And it's so important. All these neurotransmitters are released and hormones are released when that actually happens, which make us feel good and make us feel relaxed and make us feel open and willing to actually communicate. So yeah, spending time with people face-to-face in real life is really important. Over Zoom, it's better than actually just texting, but you still miss out on a lot of that information. You don't get the pheromones. We have pheromones that we give off when we're with people that we actually like. So there's all these things that happen when we actually do sit down with people and we actually spend time with people we like, which is so important, you know, for our neurodevelopment, to keep our brains healthy, for our physiology, slows our heart rate, you know, a thousand different things. Just having someone sitting beside someone who's unconscious and having them hold their hand 
you know, it can change the, the neural activity that's actually occurring in the unconscious. Wow. Yeah, you know, it's pretty amazing. Very uh, powerful. It's so important for us to do that. And it's because, you know, we only became the alpha species. We only took over the world because we collaborate and because we are social species. We are the most social species there is in the world. We're the only species that actually gives up. You know, we've got to realise that we're here because we're connected and because we're social and we've got to keep doing that. Absolutely. I never stopped holding my family, hugging my friends, shaking hands with the customers. I mean, you've got to mean it, of course. You don't just do it gratuitously without thinking, as some people would shake hands without even thinking what that really means, because you don't want to lose your humanity. I think retaining your humanity in what you're talking about that connection with what made us a human species, that collaboration, the touch. Uh, now, if we lose that, we lose our experience of the world. Now, what you just described earlier about how we interact as a social species, it just occurred to me that we experience the world through those five senses, don't we? Touch, smell, you, you mentioned the pheromones, and now hearing and seeing someone. If we're shutting down, then we are disconnecting mm. from this world and we're disconnecting parts of our brain. So I just wanted to make that point, the, the importance of experiencing the world through our five senses. My father used to hate answering the phone and he wouldn't talk to any of his clients or anything on the phone. Um, I used to ask him why. And he used to say, I can't tell what they're thinking over the phone. And it's so true. <laughs> yeah. And so he, he just would not talk to people over the phone, had to be face to face so that he could actually see what they were thinking. And it is really important. And it's also why I think we have so much vitriol over the internet. We have all these comments and everything because people don't see other people as people when you're on the internet. Yeah. Absolutely. So you can say nasty things. Yeah. And also the miscommunication. You don't, actually understand that someone's perhaps been sarcastic rather than being serious. And all these things we pick up when we're actually face to face, which we don't when we're over the internet, which is why I don't like, you know, commenting on, I try to avoid it as much as possible. My father was a very smart man. And, uh, <laughs> and because you're right, there is no empathy there. Without empathy, you can't find common ground. Mm. Without empathy, you can't be a, a great leader at work. Without empathy, you can't be uh, a business owner that, cares for their clients or customers and I absolutely get what your father was talking about and we need to return some of those values when I say return I don't want people to think that oh this is us romanticizing about the old days I'm a progressive I do like progress but it's got to be for the better you can't just have progress for progress sake and call it progress if it does not empower humans I don't call that progress and uh, so anything that takes away that human connection is to be you know, viewed cautiously. And I think technology is that. So let's look at some of the tips then, if we split them up into two areas. Uh, one is avoidance. You mentioned switching off notifications, just as a summary. I think we both mentioned bookending your day with no technology. So first hour and last hour, you mentioned reading a book as before you go to bed, especially if it's a really boring book. <laughs> I actually get my wife to read me books. She's an avid equestrian. She loves horses and she has these 
books that she's so passionate about, but I get her to read them to me because I find them extremely boring. <laughs> and without a doubt, it puts me to sleep. Also getting rid of all the pings. I, I got rid of notifications, I think 10 years ago because uh, my mind was so susceptible and I noticed uh, my attention span was diminishing. So <laughs> I completely got rid of it. There's a lot of people will say, nah, as soon as I wake up, I want to look at my phone. There are those people that are going to just ignore what we just said. It's probably us as well, because there are some mornings where I will reach over and have a look at my phone because I think it's earth shatteringly important that I check for this email or this message. So what do we do then if we are overexposed to technology and what can we do to neutralize or reverse that? So I've put together a, a short list, Mark, and please either add to these comments or elaborate on them. But I find from personal experience, the most effective way for me to step into a state of creativity and innovation and neutralize the anxiety that I feel when I'm on technology too much. And the best way to start firing the brain is to get back into my body. And the way I do that is through dance. So when my daughter was a lot younger, we would put music on in the living room and just go crazy and start dancing and singing. Now, you can't do that in an office, but I promise you, if you try it, if you've had a stressful day because of a technology overload, or you feel like you've had enough of Facebook on your phone and you just want to throw the phone and you want to step into your body and step into your natural human state of empathy, affection, warmth, creativity, innovation, the best way is to put your favorite music on, dance, and better still, sing. What do you think of that? I love it. I actually have a daughter who's about to become a teenager, and I use it as a circuit breaker. So I'll put on music and start dancing if we start banging heads over an issue, and yeah. she just bursts out laughing and starts dancing with me because she loves love dancing. It. I play guitar. Uh, my daughter plays saxophone and clarinet. My son plays drums. My wife plays piano, saxophone, what else? Flute. Yeah, music's a huge part of my life. I'm an awful dancer, but I love to dance. And my <laughs> daughter finds it very funny when I do. And so it's a great circuit breaker. But the other thing that I also find, which most people may not find as rewarding as I do, but I surf um, and I body surf. And I find that also a great Beautiful way of um, getting back in touch with nature. You yes. might be lucky enough to see a dolphin. You might be lucky enough to see a turtle. Even if you don't, just yeah. having the the visceral experience of the water over you, I think, is just fantastic. And I have a beautiful partner who will tell me when I'm getting to a point where I need to go for a surf, uh, <laughs> which is also an added bonus because a lot of my research is in virtual reality. So I spend a lot of time on devices, programming and so on. So I need to detox a lot of the time. And yeah, my, my lovely partner will tell me when I need to and I go and go for a surf or put on some music or pick up my guitar. And it's a great way to start again. Yeah, as it's motion, isn't it? It's movement. And as your body moves, you know, your brain grooves. I once heard that any movement so you know i use dance because of the, the impact that it has on the brain i've seen research where the brain fires like crazy when you're dancing listening to music and, and singing but definitely surfing is 
probably the most in touch with nature you can get because it also teaches you acceptance and going with the flow and not resisting, which I absolutely love. I was going to mention nature walks, tech-free that is. So I will often put my phone away and just go for 20, 30 minutes. And I know some people are thinking, oh, but what if something happens to me on that walk and I need to call someone? No. Okay, your ancestors survived without it till the age, <laughs> till a ripe old age. You can too, and I promise you, unless you have a medical condition and you absolutely need it. The other one is meditation, but this is a chicken and an egg scenario because people whose brains have been fried by technology often have a monkey brain, as uh, yoga instructors will tell you. Someone should write the book called The Rise of the Monkey Brain because that's where their thoughts are just going wild and meditation quietens the mind. But ironically, it's a lot harder to meditate if you have a monkey brain. So you need to have, in my morning rituals that I've taught in previous podcasts, it's best uh, to follow this routine of motion as in movement, meditation, then journaling. Because movement can neutralize all the anxiety, get your chemicals back into balance, especially if it's exercise that gets you huffing and puffing, uh, you know, taxes your aerobic activity. You can reset your chemistry very quickly, and that allows you to step into meditation a lot easier. Mm -hmm. And the fourth one, uh, which is one that we mentioned, uh, which I think is the number one key takeaway, is social engagement. I use social engagement. I'll call a friend, I'll say, meet me at the cafe, we'll grab a coffee and then go for a long walk and we're talking. And that also neutralizes. So for people out there who just don't want to give up their technology, and certainly this podcast hasn't just been about technology. It is an important factor which impacts our cognitive performance. And that's what this podcast is about. But yeah, technology does definitely impact on that innate ability uh, of humans to show empathy and creativity and if, ever, if people want to dive deeper into this work, because Professor Mark Williams have been studying this for years, and we really look forward to your book called The Connected Species. And I hope it comes out soon. I'll be the first to, to buy it and read it. <laughs> Hopefully it won't put you to sleep at night. <laughs> there are certain books I will not read before bed because they get me all revved up. And I have a feeling with your book, there'll be so many key takeaways that I'll be just writing profusely out of it. Because this is a, an area that I'm taking a very keen interest because I really care not just for the physical health of our followers and humanity, but uh, also for their mental well-being, their emotional well-being. And I think cognitive performance and ability to retain, form memories, retain memories, recall memories, create, design, innovate, is what makes us alive. That's what makes us human. And for us to shut down that part of ourselves, we're not really alive. And that's a tragedy for humanity. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And it would be such a shame. Can I just add one other thing? It's, it's often just being aware of the time you're spending and so starting one of the tracking apps on your devices, which tracks what you're actually doing during the day and just looking at that once a week and seeing what you're actually doing can actually help a lot because you can actually go, oh, I didn't realise I spent 12 hours a week on Facebook or whatever and can often make you more aware of what you're actually doing during the weekend perhaps you'll be more motivated to change as well. Absolutely. Yeah. What you can measure, 
you can then pivot. Very good point. Professor Mark Williams, thank you so much for giving of your time and your years of experience to download your wisdom, your insights and the information. Really, I'm really grateful on behalf of everyone in our community. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for your time. Excellent. That's it from us this week. Until next time, as always, live consciously, my friends.